service. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. I'm getting tired of the glare and light. I've had enough of staying out at night. There's nothing in it, honey, all not right. I'm through, all through. A little coffee in a one more town. That's where I'd like to go and settle The stories about Mickey Rourke are insane. He quit acting to become a boxer, and when he returned to Hollywood, his face was so pulverized and surgically altered that he was unrecognizable. He was with Gambino family crime boss John Gotti Jr. on the night before the feds staged a major raid on Gambino's estate. He was accused of donating part of his salary to efforts supporting the IRA during one of the bloodiest years of conflict in Northern Ireland. He sought the guidance of a saint when he was hellbent to carry out a revenge-slash-suicide plot. And although his desire to do things the hard way has led to a scattershot career, Mickey Rourke made great films. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't a clip from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Irving Gillette and Francis Fisher singing Settle Down in a One-Horse Town from 1915. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to a clip from Robert Zemeckis' Forrest Gump. And why would I play you that specific slice of box of chocolates cheese, could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on July 18th, 1994. And that was the day that Mickey Rourke was arrested for domestic abuse. A charge he vehemently denied, even though it was in step with his carefully constructed bad boy image. On this episode, the Gambino crime family, the IRA, a revenge-slash-suicide plot in Mickey Rourke. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, Season 4, Hollywoodland. Mickey Rourke's plane was late. By the time he got to the estate on Mills Neck, Long Island, it was nearly midnight. The party was breaking up and the guests were leaving. The man of the hour, the man of the house, he was still there, for now. John Gotti Jr. welcomed his old friend into his home. Mickey had been there when Jr.'s father, John Gotti Sr., AKA the Teflon Don, head of the Gambino crime family, stood trial for racketeering, extortion, jury tampering, and murder. Mickey sat front and center in the courtroom audience to offer his support. Gotti Sr. was now watching the rest of his days slowly go by at a federal penitentiary in Illinois. And it looked like Junior was headed for the same fate. January 19th, 1996. Word on the street was that the feds were going to raid Junior's house the next day, probably early. The organized crime task force never let anyone drink the goddamn coffee first, and they wanted to take Junior down for his supervisory role in the Gambino family now that his father was locked up. 
The whole thing was a charade. Anyone could see that. The DA was up for re-election, and still, Junior didn't want to be handcuffed in his boxers at the ass crack of dawn. And there was something else he wanted, he needed. And in his time of need, he could use an ear to bend, counsel, advice, sympathy. He needed a friend, and he had one in Mickey Rourke. Mickey and Junior poured two glasses of brandy and retired to the office for a private sit-down. As an actor, Mickey was method to the core. He used his own life experiences to inform his choices for a role, but also immersed himself in the lives of the people he portrayed. He hung out with legendary boozer Charles Bukowski to play the writer's semi-autobiographical character in Barfly in 1987. That same year, while shooting the movie A Prayer for Dying, in which he played a member of the Irish Republican Army trying to escape his past, Mickey, an Irish Catholic with ancestors from Cork, claimed to have met with real members of the IRA to help him, quote unquote, better understand the situation. He further claimed that he had donated part of his salary to, quote, causes in Northern Ireland. He made vague mention of a defense fund for Joe Doherty, an IRA gunman fighting extradition from a New York jail cell. The UK media had a field day with that one. But when pressured to explain further, Mickey denied giving any money to anyone connected with the IRA. He said if he was sympathetic to anyone, it was to the character he was playing. And now, just like Mickey's character in A Prayer for Dying wanted out of the IRA, John Gotti Jr. wanted out of the Gambino family. He was tired of what he and the others called the life. He wasn't like his father. He didn't have the stomach to do the things that needed doing. And they didn't call him the dapper Don like his father. He was the dopey Don. He obviously wasn't cut out for this shit, and he wanted to be unmade. Eight years earlier, Christmas Eve of 1988, Junior stood in the Mulberry Street apartment in Manhattan. He held a photo of a saint in his hand with a drop of blood from his father, John Gotti Sr., on top of it. He held the photo to a flame and made the pledge. He vowed to burn in hell, just like the photo burned in his hands, if he ever betrayed La Cosa Nostra. Leaving the life was tantamount to betrayal. In the eyes of many, including his father, he knew what he wanted wasn't going to be easy. He was choosing to do things the hard way. Mickey Rourke could relate. The hard way was all he knew. Six years prior, in 1990, Mickey Rourke quit acting, quit Hollywood. Put down animal on my passport, or businessman, he said, because I'm in the business of living and surviving. But Mickey Rourke didn't go quietly or easy. He ended the 1980s by making a bunch of bad movies that tanked his image and mocked the better movies he made during the first half of the decade. He talked shit about studio moguls like Sam Goldwyn in public. He even blamed the LA riots in 1992 on the movies of Spike Lee and John Singleton. But Mickey Rourke is a fucking asshole, Spike Lee shot back. He's a fucking redneck motherfucking cracker. He's been riding a motorcycle without a helmet and he's punch drunk from being in the ring. And that's where Mickey Rourke found himself in the early 90s. Self-imposed exile from Hollywood and back in the boxing ring. Boxing was his first obsession. According to Mickey, the chip was firmly ensconced on his shoulder before he was a teenager. He was pissed off at his mother for leaving his father back in Schenectady and moving the rest of the family to Miami. And he was pissed at his mother's new husband, a man Mickey as strongly insinuated was abusive. According to Mickey, by 10 years old, he was getting into fights. 
and he hunted down the bullies harassing his little brother Joey and beat the piss out of each and every one of them. His stepfather signed him up for boxing lessons in order to keep him out of trouble. His stepfather, on the other hand, claims that he only signed Mickey up for boxing so that he could learn how to protect himself, seeing how he was the weakest of their Brady Bunch household. Mickey says he was a Golden Gloves boxer in his teens, and that he won 20 of 26 fights, 17 by knockout. But the Golden Gloves records don't go back that far, and there's no hard proof that he did anything of the sort. Trainers, Mickey's stepfather, even the Golden Gloves organization, all think that Mickey harbors delusions about his career in the ring, and about his life in general. But maybe he simply always played a part. One thing's for sure. By 1971, Mickey Rourke had sustained two concussions and was told by doctors that he had to stop fighting or risk permanent brain damage. Fast forward to the 90s, and Mickey was now around 40 years old and experiencing some serious deja vu. Once again, he was boxing, and once again, he was getting concussions. And yes, once again, he was being told by a doctor that he should quit. He said the next time Mickey laced up, put on the trunks and stepped into the ring, it could be his last. So Mickey stopped boxing again. Now what the hell was he gonna do? Act? Go back to Hollywood? The bridges he'd burned there were charred, smoldering. They were memories, that's all. Bad memories. Even worse were the memories of his estranged wife, Carrie. He was pretty sure he couldn't live his life without her, but he was also pretty sure they didn't want to die. Neither did John Gotti Jr. Junior got the jump on the feds, slipped out of his Long Island home in the middle of the night and checked into a hotel in East Norwich, four miles up the road. He'd never give those windbreaker-wearing motherfuckers the satisfaction of surprising him in bed. When agents stormed the front gates of his home at 5.30 a.m. on January 20th, 1996, Junior was already on the phone with his attorney from his hotel room. He had the upper hand and negotiate a deal or a complete closure from the life, and not just with the U.S. government, but with his father. Junior told Gotti Sr. that he wasn't cut out for it, and his father told him he was weak. The only way to beat these motherfuckers, he said, is to fight. But Junior didn't want to fight. Not now. Not ever. Typically, the only way out of La Cosa Nostra, the only way to turn your back on that sacred oath, is through death. But John Gotti Jr. got a pass from the old man because he was flesh and blood. Plus, his mother wrote his incarcerated father a pissed off letter which said if anything happened to Junior, she'd never forgive him. Junior was out. He made it all seem so easy. Like he could just choose to do something else and everyone would give you a pass. Mickey Rourke, on the other hand, made nothing look easy. Well, the actual acting came easy to him, but life, no way. The pass wasn't gonna come easy either. As I've said, his departure from Hollywood was messy. So what was he gonna do? put his tail between his legs and go begging for his spot back in the Hollywood hierarchy? Nah, John Gotti Jr. didn't beg. He said, this is how it's gonna be. And then that's how it was. And Mickey wasn't gonna ask either. He told everyone exactly what to expect as he made his less than graceful transition back from the boxing ring to the movie set. And he let the chip on his shoulder do the talking. You take Alec Baldwin and Daniel Day-Lewis and Kevin Costner and put me in something with them, he said and I'll eat their assholes. Mickey fucking Rourke was back.
Schenectady was cold. At least Mickey Rourke thought so. Everyone else in town seemed to be less put out by the temperature. It was a solid 10, maybe 15 degrees colder than New York City. And how was that even possible? Maybe all those years in Miami had turned him thin-blooded. It was 1980. It had been years since Mickey Rourke had returned to his hometown, the place where he was born and christened Philip Andre Rourke Jr. But Phil was his father's name, so everyone called him Mickey. Something to do with his Irish heritage or the fact that his old man loved Mickey Mantle. His old man was the reason he was freezing his ass off in Schenectady. His acting coach back in New York City sent him on this boondoggle. If he wanted a real shot at passing his audition at the prestigious actor's studio like Marlon Brando, Sidney Poitier, Steve McQueen, and James Dean before him, Mickey had to talk with his father for the first time as an adult. Only then could he pull from his real-world experience to deliver a compelling and believable performance in the required audition scene between a father and a son. But the audition was tomorrow, back in New York City, and Mickey needed to find this guy yesterday. Mickey walked up State Street until he came to the White Castle Diner, and the memories hit him almost as hard as the waft of greasy food. Milkshakes with his father when he was just a little kid. His dad, an amateur bodybuilder, flexing his bicep when Mickey touched it with his finger. Nostalgia called to him like a siren. He opened the door and walked inside. And would you fucking believe it, who's sitting inside the White Castle at a table all alone like it was Destiny Kismet? Philip Rourke Sr., Mickey's old man. The long estranged father and son reconnected, talked about old times, and maybe fought back a few tears. Later that night, Phil gave Mickey 50 bucks and put him on the bus back to the city. The next day, Mickey, armed to the teeth with newfound emotions, killed his actor's studio audition. The panel of judges, including legendary director and studio co-founder Elia Kazan, had never seen such a convincing father-son dynamic. And Kazan worked with Brando, Mickey was the only actor to pass the audition. Hold up. If this story sounds a little too perfect, a little too carefully constructed, like the script of some maudlin tearjerker movie, well, maybe it is. The only person who knows if Mickey Rourke actually ran into his father in a diner in his hometown at the most opportune moment of his burgeoning acting career is Mickey Rourke. It does seem a little too good to be true, just like the impressive teenage boxing record that he bragged about or his insistence that he was born in 1956, when many police and school records, as well as his goddamn Wikipedia page, whatever that's worth, show that it was actually 1952. These little lies are good for the story for one reason or another, but mainly because they're good for the character. It is true, however, that Mickey absolutely aced his actor's studio audition that day. It took Jack Nicholson five auditions to get in. Dustin Hoffman needed six, 11 for Harvey Keitel and Mickey Rourke auditioned once. It's also true that acting came easy to Mickey, and he came to acting unexpectedly. In the 1970s, after doctors told him he had to stop boxing and risk permanent brain damage, a friend approached Mickey, asking if he'd ever considered stepping on stage. A local play needed a replacement actor, a brawny guy like Mickey with his tough yet sweet good looks, a guy who could be dynamic, kind, and quiet one moment, and explosive the next. And Mickey was pleasantly surprised by how natural it all felt. He also fell in love with being someone else for a change. He never had a chance to get out of his own head, to forget about everything for a moment. His parents' divorce, his rocky relationship with his stepfather, 
the fights inside and outside the ring and in the house. Acting allowed him to escape the bullshit, pretend to be someone else, someone smarter, someone tougher. Starting with a small breakout role in the 1981 thriller Body Heat, the sky was the limit for Mickey Rourke. He was labeled the new Brando, the new James Dean. He oozed testosterone, but he was also comfortably in touch with his feminine side. He won over critics with roles in Diner, Rumblefish, and The Pope of Greenwich Village. One writer from the New York Times noted his decadent chic. He worked with directors like Francis Ford Coppola, Michael Cimino, and Barry Levinson. He made good money. He bought a giant house, he acquired something like a dozen Harley Davidsons, and he could do it all without getting repeatedly punched in the face. But in 1986, when he made Nine and a Half Weeks, the proto-Fifty Shades erotic drama co-starring Kim Basinger and lots of food from the fridge, Mickey began to have second thoughts. He was now an international sex symbol, his Catholic guilt commingled with his desire to maintain that tough guy image. That was the Mickey Rourke character tough, dangerous, not just some lusted after piece of meat. The one who had to be put in the ring at age 12 just so we couldn't put some other kids from the street in the hospital. That character had a big fucking chip on his shoulder. And so, to get that character back on track, Mickey began to make very calculated casting decisions that would veer him as far away from Pretty Boy as he could. He took his intoxicating mix of beauty and brawn and gave it a black eye, bruised it, and then dropped it in the gutter. He said no to big roles in Rain Man, Silence of the Lambs, and Pulp Fiction. Instead, he played a drunk writer in Barfly, a brain-damaged boxer in Homeboy. It wasn't long after playing a boxer in a movie that Mickey renounced movies to return to boxing for real. The method was no longer something he did for work, it was life. He wasn't in the business of acting, he was in the business of living and surviving. But first, in 1989, Shortly before he jump-started his professional boxing career, Mickey seemingly lampooned nine and a half weeks by making a second-run version of it called Wild Orchid. It was on the set of that film that Mickey began an affair with model and actress Carrie Otis. She was beautiful, and Mickey was obsessed. A little too obsessed, perhaps. When he eventually proposed to her, he did it with a Harry Carey sword by his side. He told her he'd kill himself then and there if she said no. Carrie didn't know if she should be flattered or terrified, and she said yes. Unsurprisingly, Mickey was definitely a little too jealous. After a nude photo of Carrie was published in Vanity Fair, he sent a couple of goons to threaten the photographer. They followed him into an elevator, roughed him up, stole his hat, and left him shaking like a fresh Polaroid. According to Mickey, the Vanity Fair photographer wasn't the only one to meet his street-tough wrath. When Carrie developed a heroin habit, Mickey, who was busy battling ongoing addictions to anger and attitude, claims he hunted down one of her dealers and beat him within an inch of his life. Beat him so bad that the guy wound up in a coma for days. Did Mickey Rourke really go John Wick on his wife's drug dealer? Hard to say. Definitely seemed like the character for him, but he wasn't arrested for it. And just like he wasn't arrested when Carrie was nearly killed by something that belonged to him. One night, on their way to dinner, she was shocked to find a 357 Magnum lying on the floor of the passenger side of Mickey's car. But why Mickey nonchalantly left loaded firearms on the floor of his car, she had no idea. He told her it was for their protection. She told Mickey to put it away, and he did. He failed to mention that his interpretation of put it away 
meant stashing the gun in her handbag. But later that night, when they got home and walked inside, Carrie did what she always did when she came home at night. She tossed the handbag onto the counter. And as soon as it hit the countertop, a deafening shot echoed through the kitchen. Holy shit, Mickey screamed. Was that a bullet that just whizzed past me? A bullet, Carrie thought. Are you fucking kidding me? Carrie was shouting now. What the fuck are you doing shooting that fucking gun off in the house? And suddenly, she felt woozy. Her shoulder was tight. It felt like it was on fire. And then, she saw the look in Mickey's eyes. Shock, sadness, regret, panic. Carrie looked down and saw the dark red stain on her white shirt getting larger by the second. And the bullet from Mickey's 357, the one stashed inside Carrie's handbag, the one without a safety, had discharged and shot her. Two inches from her heart. Afterwards, there were no charges. It was chalked up as a stupid accident. But the gunshot incident and all the other crazy anecdotes about life with Mickey Rourke built a case for his character. That he was tough, dangerous, jealous, obsessive. Someone looked at him the wrong way and that was it. It was just as he had intended. But living that character came with unexpected consequences. On July 18, 1994, Carrie Otis called the Los Angeles Police Department. She said that Mickey had slapped her, kicked her, and knocked her down. And Mickey was charged with spousal abuse. He faced a year in jail. In his mugshot, he gives a snarky smile to the camera. And the edge of his lips are upturned. His eyes are narrowed. He looks like a schoolboy who got sent to the principal's office for putting a tack on the classmate's chair. It was Mickey's second arrest of the year so far. The first was for an argument outside of Miami Club, in which he talked a big talk but kept his clenched fists to himself. This time, he didn't have to talk a big talk. His mug did the talking. Arrogant, vain, punchable. So punchable that within a matter of months, that face would be just a memory. It would be pulverized into oblivion. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Mickey Rourke looked at his reflection in the mirror. He didn't recognize the face staring back at him. It looked like a face created by a person who had been drugged, blindfolded, and then told to build a face in the dark. Like someone had wrapped new skin around an existing face, but it turned out there wasn't enough skin to cover the entire thing. 1994 was coming to an end. This was Mickey's post-boxing phase. His last professional bout was a few months behind him. It was a draw. Not as good as a win, but he'd take it. It was better than the other option, the one his doctor warned him about, imminent death. He had to stop or he wouldn't live to see 45. Mickey ended his three-year professional boxing career with six wins, two of them KOs, and two TKOs, along with two draws. And what did he have to show for it? This fucking face. Boxing did to his face what Mickey had done to his acting career just years earlier. Pummeled it beyond recognition. His tongue was split, his cheekbone was compressed, he was missing teeth, his lip was infected, his nose had been repeatedly broken. His cosmetic surgeon went by the nickname The Butcher, and for good reason. In one of the five operations to rebuild Mickey's nose, the butcher cut a hunk of cartilage from Mickey's ear. It hurt like hell. And the butcher stuck a long needle deep into Mickey's swollen lip. The pain was excruciating. His lip throbbed. 
It felt like he was going to puke or pass out. But when the butcher slowly dragged the needle out, it pulled with it some white ooze mixed with red and black blood. The butcher's handiwork left Mickey's lips sticking out like a, well, like a sore lip. But what the fuck could he do with this face now? If he went crawling back to Hollywood, would they even recognize him? They already didn't want him. He'd gone from the next big thing in the early 80s to a washed up nobody just a decade later. He was too good to be true, a liability, a pariah. His mouth was too loud, his attitude was too volatile. The chip on his shoulder was a permanent fixture. Still, he needed money. He was up to 60 grand in debt. His LA home was repossessed. He began to sell off his collection of Harleys at bargain prices just to be able to afford a one-room $500 a month apartment. He borrowed money from his friends, but he needed more. And he needed his wife, Carrie, too, but she was long gone. She left him. Even after the charges of spousal abuse against Mickey were dropped and Carrie failed to show up for two court appearances. Mickey maintained his innocence the whole time. It wasn't him that roughed her up so bad. I swear to God, it was some piece of shit model scout she told him about. She was so high when it happened that she couldn't get her story straight and that asshole roughed Carrie up and then tried to pin the blame on Mickey, seeing as how it was so easy to visualize a tough guy like him doing something so awful. Fuck that guy. Fuck him for contributing to Mickey's bad boy public image. Mickey was seething. He wanted revenge against this prick. He'd take the guy by surprise. He'd fucking kill him. Not with his fist though. He was done with that. His cage had been rattled one too many times. Now he'd just blow the fucker's head off. Close range, one shot, bam. And maybe that would win Carrie back. Maybe avenging her honor. And if that didn't work, if Carrie still wouldn't take him back, well, fuck. Did he just turn the gun on himself? finished the job of his botched Picasso of a face and put himself out of his lifelong misery. Jesus Christ, what was he thinking? Murder, suicide. His Irish Catholic guilt roared to life like a wave of nausea in the back of his throat. He felt like a lost cause. So he decided to seek out St. Jude, the patron saint of lost causes. He needed a second opinion. Mickey Rourke walked to the front steps of the Holy Cross Roman Catholic Church on West 42nd Street in Hell's Kitchen. He felt for the gun stuffed deep inside his coat pocket, not the 357 Magnum that had accidentally shot Carrie, something smaller, easier to conceal. 38 caliber revolver, pearl handle. In the other pocket, he clutched a six-page letter he'd written to Carrie. He was trying to talk himself out of his plan, trying to talk himself off the ledge. He stood in the cold, looking up at the brick facade of the church and waiting for a sign. Should he do it? Should he not do it? He walked inside the church, and it was empty here, so he thought. He walked towards the altar of St. Jude. He looked up at the holy sculpture, looking back down at him. What did he have to lose? I'll tell you what's left to lose, came a voice from the shadows. A man appeared from the doorway in the back of the church. Six feet tall, 300 pounds easy wearing an Irish green cassock. Reverend Peter Colapietro, AKA Father Pete, AKA the Whiskey Priest. Over cigarettes and red wine, Mickey sought Father Pete's counsel. Mickey wanted to know, if he were to carry out this plan, kill this asshole, and then kill himself, what were the religious repercussions? Well, for starters, Father Pete said, suicide is a mortal sin. Father Pete asked Mickey if he'd ever heard about purgatory. Purgatory, sure. That was a fancy word for hell, wasn't it? Not exactly, Father Pete explained. Purgatory is where you go 
before hell. A place where you have to experience all the pain of your natural life all over again. Mickey laughed. No offense, Father, he said. But it sounds a lot like the place I've been living for the last 40 fucking years. Mickey Rourke was laid out on the wrestling mat, but he wasn't down for the count quite yet. He rolled onto his side. He grimaced. The pain was half fake and half real. Half fake because he was acting. Half real because he was 56 years old and he was getting too old for this shit. Boxing at 42 was one thing, but wrestling at this age was nuts. The audience of extras around the ring were chanting for him to get back up, and the cameras kept rolling. Mickey peeled back a strip of white tape wrapped around his right wrist and pulled out a small razor blade concealed inside. The blade was so tiny it was dwarfed by his thick, calloused fingers. He brushed his long blonde hair out of the way and held the blade up to his forehead. The movie's director, Darren Aronofsky, told Mickey about how professional wrestlers do this thing called gigging or juicing, where they deliberately cut themselves with a razor hidden within their wrist tape in order to make it look like they've been injured during the fight. Gigging brought an element of realness to an otherwise staged event. The idea for the gigging scene in the movie was to use fake blood and make it look like Mickey's character had sliced himself open. But even at 56, Mickey Rourke was still method to the core. And he only did things one way, the hard way. From where he laid on the mat, he dug the tiny blade into his forehead, grimaced some more, and this time 100% real and the razor sliced a thin line in his leathery skin. Blood oozed out, first a little and then a lot. He touched the blood with his finger and it was warm, real, and it made him feel alive. Mickey Rourke's role as Randy the Ram Robinson in Darren Aronofsky's 2008 film The Wrestler was a lifeline that seemingly came out of nowhere. It legitimized the actor at a moment in his career when it seemed like he was destined to be nothing but a grotesque caricature of his former self. It was the kind of role that never came his way anymore, but it was also the kind of role he could only play now after he'd lost so much. First, he lost his acting career to boxing, and then he lost his boxing career, and Carrie was gone and she was never coming back. And the world at large thought he'd lost his goddamn mind, what with the fights and the arrests and the late night talks with Gambino crime bosses and the soft spot for the IRA and just how effortlessly he carried that big chip on his shoulder. He lost his little brother Joey, dead at the age of 50 after a long battle with cancer. Some days it seemed that the only thing that loved Mickey was his miniature chihuahua, Bojack. But then Bojack died too. Mickey gave everything he had, performing mouth to mouth on that dog for 45 minutes after he stopped breathing. On the set of The Wrestler, Mickey kept giving everything, literally giving everything that he had. He knew an opportunity like this didn't come along every day. It could be the last good opportunity he'd ever get. So he ate, he pumped iron, he sweat, he bled. He put his body through so much punishment during his training for the film that he wound up in the hospital three times, with three MRIs, and it paid off. He was nominated for an Academy Award and won the Golden Globe Award for Best Actor in a Drama. He was respected once again by a town and an industry that had long left him for dead. But Mickey Rourke's late career success came with a catch. 
first, spending months inside a wrestling ring wasn't all that different from being in a boxing ring. The line between fantasy and reality blurred. The memories came flooding back. The punches he took, the concussions that nearly killed him, the pain, the humiliation. And then there was the character of Randy the Ram Robinson, a washed up fighter, a shadow of his former self, a broken down piece of meat, a once great contender estranged from those he loved, struggling to get through a demeaning existence. And Mickey pretended like the character didn't ring any bells when he first read the script. Randy was pathetic. The guy was clearly ashamed of the things he had done, the people he had alienated. He was ashamed of what he had become. He was tough once, perhaps, but now he was just wounded, vulnerable. And Mickey dug down deep into his personal experiences like he'd been taught back at the actor's studio. He searched for personal emotions that would help him connect with his character. He found them quicker than he thought. Because he was Randy the Ram Robinson, and Randy was him. Playing the defining performance of his career was like reliving his past. Every day on set, over and over again, the fucking memories, and they hurt like hell. But this wasn't hell. It was purgatory. It was life the hard way. And giving your all to a role like that, well, that ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcasts because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.